The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. Welcome to turning hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We have a special introductory offer for all three of our newsletters for those of you who have never tried them. And you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718 718- Four five seven one four two six. That's seven one eight four five seven one four two six. Or you can go to my website at miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com to learn more about those publications. Well, Chen in particular has had a phenomenal track record. We've mentioned this before to you. Uh, Chen has taken five thousand four hundred dollars in one of the accounts that he manages, and we look at this account, which is his wife's account. It's an IRA account. Uh, Roth IRA, no new money going in, no money coming out, so it's very easy to track the performance. Started out with $5,400 in January of 2003 and grew that to over $1.1 million by the end of 
uh, April of this year. He's given a little bit of it back uh, with the market pullback, but uh, Chen has done phenomenally well. And he's sharing that information. He's sharing his wisdom, his uh, ability to make money with his readers in uh, what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling. Actually, Chen was interviewed at the AUReport.com. It's the gold report, or the, the website is the AUReport.com. Uh, and the uh, response has been nothing short of phenomenal. We've had an awful lot of new subscribers have come to us from uh, from that interview. And if you go to the aureport.com, I'm quite sure you can get uh, you can still read the interview that uh, that they did with Chen Lin. Uh, we also have some free things, of course, on our websites that I mentioned. Uh, but also Jay's watch list is a place you can go to to find out some of the companies that are on my radar screen. Some of the companies that are uh, that I'm looking at as possible uh, for possible inclusion in my newsletter, and a number of them have made it into uh, into my newsletter. Of course, we have those companies on as guests uh, on this show as well. Um, again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. We are the number one business show on the Voice America uh, channel. Uh, and so thanks to each of you for listening, for telling your friends about our show. Uh, we have a lot of new, very interesting people coming up in the next few weeks. Um, today's special guest, Addison Wigan, you're going to find to be an extremely uh, interesting fellow with lots of great ideas about investing and where you can, how you can protect your wealth in the, in the stormy days that lie ahead of us. Um, I should mention that we also want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially financially possible. And the sponsors for the first hour of uh, this show during the summer season are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp, Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Golden Minerals, Clifton Star, Silvercrest, Duncan Park Holdings, and Swiss America Trading Corporation. And we will be interviewing actually a little, uh, just in a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Mike Hoffman of Crocodile Gold, and then later we're going to be talking to the president of Dasha Capital. Two of our sponsors will be coming on with me uh, to tell their stories during over the next few minutes during the first half hour of today's show. Uh, and uh, then, as I mentioned, our special guest this week is Addison Wigan. Uh, he is the executive publisher of Agora Financial. Uh, he's also uh, done some work, uh, some excellent work in the, the film industry, putting a documentary together. And he's had a best-selling book as well, a three-time bestseller in the New York Times list. So Addison Wiggins will Addison Wiggin, I should say, is his correct name will be with us um, at about a quarter till a quarter till um, well a quarter to four East Coast time, where I'm talking to you from New York City here. Then uh, after Addison, we're going to have Dr. Fred Goldstein. He is uh, he's with us from um, uh, from Swiss America. Uh, Trading Corp. And Fred is going to talk to us about investing in gold and silver and uh, some of the uh, his views of the markets, where he thinks the markets are heading. And also, Fred will have uh, some ideas about uh, special places where you can put your money in the um, in the precious metals area. Now, with respect to the uh, equity markets and the gold markets right now, uh, I believe that we are at a very, very crucial point in time from a technical perspective. Looking at the charts uh, from April 26, which was sort of a high, a high point of late, uh, the down channels would suggest that if the Dow can get over about 10,380 or 10,400 for sure, um, and if the S&P can get over 1,100, then we're looking at the possibility of the April 26 highs not being the highs in this corrective move. Now, 
my view has been that probably the April 26th highs would hold, and we would then head down to test the March uh, 2009 lows. That's a pretty brave call right now when you listen to CNBC and uh, Bloomberg and all the rest of the mainstream media. They're basically assuming that everything is onward and upward and that we've had the worst over and that Dr. Bernanke and all the Keynesians have fixed everything up real well for us again, and, and we're going to have nothing but prosperity ahead of us. I, uh, as those of you who listen to this show on a regular basis are aware, I'm not of that mind at all. Uh, I do believe that we are in a secular bear market that started in the year 2000 and that it's not over by a long shot, and I don't believe it's going to be over, honestly, until we see the kind of lows that we normally see in secular bear market bottoms, and that requires uh, P.E. ratios for the best, uh, strongest companies in America to be around 10 or below, and we start to see uh, dividend yields that give us something like five, six, seven, eight, ten percent, something like that on those very, very strong companies. Those are the kinds of lows, and you know, I'm old enough to have lived through one of them. That was in the 1982, uh, 80 to 82 time frame, and I can remember that time very well. Nobody wanted to buy stocks. It was game over as far as the equity markets were concerned, and you couldn't find anybody who wanted to buy stocks. And if you were out there saying that you should buy stocks, well, people looked at you as if you ought to be committed to an insane asylum. And uh, we haven't gotten there yet. In fact, the um, uh, the mantra from the mainstream media is there's nothing but good times ahead. We've got this religion called Keynesian economics. It has uh, seemingly worked very well to uh, to straighten things out. My belief is that all Keynes has done for us is basically build us the biggest decline and a demise of free market capitalism, and that is really something that, that concerns me a great deal. It's not that capitalism is so wonderful. It's just it's probably the best system that we've had. Uh, and it, in terms of allowing people to be free and creative, capitalism allows it. The problem is that capitalism subjects us to the difficulties that life brings. I mean, it's just the way life is. Um, and um, uh, everybody's looking for utopia, and so they look to politicians or look for some protection to protect themselves so that they can, so that they can rise above the difficulties in life. And, and eventually, uh, what all these interventions do in the marketplace is make the markets less efficient and turn us into, um, uh, into enslaved people, ultimately. That's my belief. So anyway, we mentioned the equity markets. We need to see something over, oh, I think it's about, uh, I said 10,380 on the Dow, and um, we need to see something around 1,100 on the S&P 500. The S&P right now is at 1096.87, and the Dow is at 10385. So we're very, very close to those levels. Whether or not we get above them today or not, I think is going to have a lot to say about whether we see over the next few, um, whether we see over the next few uh, weeks, uh, days, and, and, and weeks, whether we're going to see higher, higher prices, and whether the April 26th time frame, uh, the, those highs of April 26th, will be taken out. Well, we, uh, we only have about four minutes uh, for this uh, first segment, and uh, I'm not really sure but what we shouldn't go on, uh, take a break now. But let's just, um, I just might mention that my July 7th newsletter, the monthly newsletter, I did talk about uh, the title of it was Preparing for the Impending Cataclysmic Nation-Changing Event. And that's, a, uh, that's um, a phrase that was used by Dr. Robert McHugh, who's been on this show a number of times, and Dr. McHugh does believe uh, that the April 26th 
highs will probably uh, hold, although he, uh, he's hesitant to say that now. Um, but what we can say is that um, the debt is growing exponentially, and the income to service that debt is not growing nearly as rapidly. Um, let's just see, do we have our next... Uh, uh, so we have two minutes. Let me just see here if we've got our next... Uh, if uh, Mike Hoffman is with us yet? Um, okay, I guess he's not. All right, so... I'm here, Chief. Yeah. Oh, you are here. Oh, yep. excellent. Oh, Mike, you're here. All right. Well, uh, let's um, let's go to break then, and then we'll have you on, and we can uh, we can start getting into your story. So let me um, just ask the engineer. Okay. Uh, so, Mike, we're going to. You have a lot of good news to talk about, and oh, absolutely. Uh, we're going to come back after the break here. Uh, your um, your production is coming along very well, mm-hmm. and uh, so we'll get into that and some other good news as soon as we take a little commercial break here. We'll be right back with Mike Hoffman, the president of Crocodile Gold. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Solidin Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidin.com to learn more. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network 
the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a love ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And, you know, one of the things I meant to say in the last segment but didn't get around to saying it, uh, again, is is a theme that I've been talking about every week for the last several weeks, and that is how bullish I am on gold mining companies. And the reason I'm bullish on gold mining companies is because we are seeing the real price of gold, that is what an ounce of gold will buy, rise very dramatically relative to other, uh, relative to other commodities, relative to energy, uh, to even the cost of labor in many, in many markets. Uh, and so we talked about gold relative to the Rogers Raw Material Fund buying only about an ounce of gold would have bought only about 15% of the fund before the Lehman Brothers collapse in September of 2008. It will now buy about 41% of that fund. So relative to energy, relative to copper, the base metals, foodstuffs, all kinds of things, um, the price of gold has risen very dramatically, at least as measured in U.S. dollars. And actually, gold has been strong against all currencies um, and the dollar has been one of the stronger currencies of late. And so this is a real bull market for mining companies because if what you sell is going up faster than the cost of getting it out, well, that's good news. So I'm really pleased to have one of the, I think, one of the brightest pictures, one of the brightest rising stars in the mining industry with me today. Uh, he's Mike Hoffman. He's the president of Crocodile Gold, which is really coming along very, very nicely. And it really gives me a lot of pleasure to have companies that are that are uh, that are doing well, that are uh, graduating into the uh, ranks of producers and uh, producing not only producing gold but producing at a profit, cash flow positive. Uh, so, Mike, welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thanks for having me on the show again, Jay. Well, you've been with us a few weeks ago, but you've had an awful lot of a lot of good news since then. I want to get into that, but before we do, you know, our numbers have grown very dramatically, the number of people listening to this show, so I'm not sure you were with us a few weeks ago, but there's chances are there's a lot of new people with us now, so I'd like you to perhaps just back up a little bit for those that have not heard your story before, and just tell us, uh, tell our listeners where you're producing gold, how much you expect to produce, at what cost, and so on and so forth. Okay, uh, we're a fairly new company. Um, we went public in uh, November of last year, and we produce gold in the Northern Territory of Australia. And so we started up our mill in December, and we've been uh, ramping up to full production, and we'll produce 100,000 ounces of gold this year, and we plan to expand to 200,000 ounces of gold next year. And so we started our first month of uh, commercial production in June, and that first month we came up with news last week uh, of with production of 8,700 ounces. So we're quite happy with that because, you know, things are a lot more reliable, things are running well, the recoveries are there, and, we, you know, we've got a great team there in Australia that are uh, helping us uh, grow the value of this company. 
Okay, Mike, you mentioned the word commercial production. Uh, could you just define what that means? Well, when you first start a, a mine, you're, you're capitalizing a lot of the cost. And you can imagine, you know, if you started a, a processing facility from day one, it's not going to run quite properly. And so, um, you know, as you're working out the bugs, you're going to be producing gold, but they're going to be very high cost ounces. And and you're also build, bringing in a team and that kind of thing. So normally what happens is most companies, as they're sort of growing that production and working through some of the, um, you know, startup pains, uh, they would capitalize capitalize all those costs, and and then what happens is any of the revenue you bring in act as a credit against the capital. And then, so when you feel you're up to sort of, you know, where you can make money on a cash basis, then you declare commercial production, and basically uh, then you report, you know, detailed cost information and detailed uh, production cost data. Um, you, you've had... Um that's you know really good news because it's I suppose most people are not familiar with all that goes into mining gold. It is an incredibly complicated matter. I mean, most people probably think you know think of somebody with a pan out in a river or somebody with an axe and a shovel, but actually you're you know it's it requires all kinds of geological expertise, all kinds of engineering, metallurgical expertise, all kinds of things, and uh, so to. To get past that that startup phase, it's always almost always problematic. It seems to me that you've come through it about as well as as anybody in a startup phase. It, it didn't work out too well. I mean, you know, we had our issues, but uh, really, with the team we have on board, uh, they really battled through. They've had a, a great attitude. Uh, they've been super all along, and you know, now we're at that point where you know you're not fighting fires. Now, now you're at the point where you're optimizing things, and that that's where it gets really interesting because this is where we're starting to unlock some real value for our shareholders. And when you mention your team, I think it might be good for new uh, new listeners also just to to go over that again. I think a lot of your people came from Gold Corp, perhaps. Yeah, our uh, our CFO, our uh, chief financial officer, our chief operating officer, one of our board members, uh, myself. Uh, we all formerly worked at uh, Gold Corp in executive positions. Um, actually, it was a fantastic company. It still is a fantastic company. But uh, what we'd like to do is uh, we think we have an asset that we could you know attempt to replicate the success we had there. Uh, one of the things that really got me excited about Crocodile, was, and the reason I put it into my newsletter, was not just because you're in production producing 100,000 ounces to 200,000 next year is impressive enough, but what really got me excited was the potential to grow beyond that going out, uh, because it seems to me that you had enormous exploration potential. Um, first of all, how many ounces do you have now in the reserve and in the resource categories? In the reserve category, we uh, have 550,000 ounces. That's what we inherited from the previous operators. Uh, we'll update that at the end of the year, and I expect that to grow substantially. Our resource base is about uh, 5 million ounces, and 60% of that would be measured and indicated, which is a higher degree of confidence, and 40% inferred, which is a lower degree of confidence. And there again, I'd expect that to grow significantly by the end of the year. So, I mean, if you're talking five, six million ounces of gold, um, you know, producing at 100,000 or 200,000, I should say, a year gives you a long mine life, but you have enormous exploration potential. So if you grow those ounces bigger, it seems to me somewhere down the line, I know this is uh, blue sky and this is, you know, forward-looking, 
but it would seem to me as a person who's interested in investing and holding your shares uh, for the bull market in gold that, that we could be looking potentially at something uh, much bigger than 200,000 ounces. I don't know if you want to say that now or not, but, but, it, but in theory that would seem to be the case. Our goal is to implement a strategy. We'd like to get to 10 million ounces, and then we feel we could get to a half million ounce a year production rate. Now, Mm -hmm. do we know how we're going to get there right now? No, but we're implementing a strategy from an exploration point of view by aggressively exploring this year and next year, and we're also looking to develop the infrastructure so we can get there. So we want to we want to be able to keep our options open and, and and attempt to get there. We have a very large land position. Uh, we've got a lot of historical results that, that need further drilling, and, uh, you know, we really believe that uh, we can get there. And the big thing is, uh, you know, you have to spend money to do that, so that's what we're going to do. And what are you planning to spend on your exploration budget going forward, well, let, let's say this year? Um, well, th- between this year and next year, like you know, um, I guess uh, we're looking to try to increase the the resource base by five million ounces. Um, we've been finding gold for about six dollars an ounce. So conservatively, if we say it's ten dollars an ounce, we need to spend fifty million dollars in exploration. So between this year and next year, we'd like to spend that amount of money. And uh, you know, we're, you know, as long as we have success, we'll we'll spend that money. And you know. Right for now, everywhere we've been drilling, uh, we have yet to sort of uh, uh, the ore bodies, still, ore bodies we're drilling on still remain open. So uh, we're very happy. It's working out as, as well as we could have hoped. Um, the biggest thing we have to have the discipline is to systematically explore our tenement package. You have um, recently raised some money. Now, if you're producing 100,000 ounces this year, uh, by the way, I guess I didn't ask you, what do you figure your cash cost will be for producing those 100,000 ounces this year? Um, For the commercial production uh, aspect, basically from June on, uh, we're looking at U.S. $700 an ounce. And we expect once we grow to uh, that production to 200,000 ounces next year, that should drop to the, call it the lower $600 an ounce uh, range. Mm -hmm. Part of it is economies of scale. Part of it is we'll be developing some uh, lower cost production ounces. All right, so I guess the listeners can do their own math. If, if you take, uh, assuming current gold prices of $1,200 thereabouts and take 700 away times 100,000 ounces um, uh, and then do the math, uh, similar math for next year with a little lower cost, you can start to get a sense of the cash flow that you should be able to produce. Now, do you expect that that should, are you going to be using that money to expand your production, I mean, expand your resources? Absolutely, yeah. A lot of that funding would be used for exploration, uh, developing a new ore body at Cosmo, which will be approximately 100,000 ounces a year of lower cash cost. And uh, also we're looking, and we'll be coming up with news soon on that, we're looking at potentially building a new mill, uh, which would save us some operating costs by not having to haul the ore to the present mill. Okay, and you may have to go back to the equity markets or debt financing or what? Um, what we're looking at right now is as much as possible we'd like to do that at a cash flow. Um, you know, a lot of this all depends on, you know, timing and, you know, the debt conditions and equity conditions. But I would say with the stock price the way it is right now, we attempt to do it uh, from internal cash flow. You have, uh, I, I forgot to ask you, but I just want to make sure uh, that I know the answer to this. You do not have any uh, forward sales on your gold, or do you? Do you have any hedge gold? Uh, we do not hedge any gold at all. Uh, we've put in some short-term currency hedges, but that's really to cover some of the operating costs and provide some price protection. So when the Australian dollar weakened uh, in the last few months, we uh, put some uh, forward hedges on at uh, 
um, when it was weak. So right now it's about 1.13 to the U.S. dollar, and we've got some at 1.14 and some at 1.2. So it's it what it does is just sort of protect some of our operating costs. And, okay, on the on the currency hedges. Yeah, exactly. Now you on July 8th you made an announcement about some uh, results, um, some very very good results on the Howley project. Would you care to just comment uh, a moment or two about that? Uh, it gets really interesting because uh, you know we released about I think it was about 45 holes and. Uh, there were some nice wide intersections, you know, sort of plus 40 meters of over a gram and a half gold. Mm. And, um, you know, we saw, saw some high-grade intersections. And really what it's doing is it's upgrading the existing resource to higher confidence levels, but it's also expanding the resource. And, and really what, what happens is the bigger that resource gets, when we actually do the, the pit planning and the pit optimizations, it, it means we have a bigger pit, which then allows us to maybe use bigger equipment. And, and there again, uh, we're able to uh, optimize optimize on the cost front, and also, obviously, uh, produce a few more ounces. It seems to me that you have the potential with your own land holding there to to really increase the size of your operation. I don't suppose you're really looking for any um, acquisitions or anything like that now. You know something, until we figure out what we have, uh, we've got so much work to do just on our own land package. Uh, we want to see what the potential is here. Um, you know, it's it's like you never say never, but, you know, we're so busy and consumed with doing what, you know, we have right now. I think uh, that's really going to be our focus over the at least the next year or two. So, Well, it's an excellent story. Uh, I, I would like to get your sense of where you think um, – Let's let's say uh, that the share. Let's say that you perform according to the, what you just talked about. You know, uh, two hundred thousand ounces at a low six hundred dollar cost next year. That puts you into a, a group of you know, let's say sort of reasonably good sized mining gold mining producers. Uh, if you get up to half a million ounces, you're sort of approaching the big leagues. But where, where do you think, uh, in terms of the multiple of your share price, to pull you up to your peers? Where do you think? Your shares should be selling now, assuming that you do perform. I would, I would expect that would happen. But where would that take you, more or less? Um, we were uh, our, our share price earlier this year was uh, up as high as two dollars and forty cents. Uh, it could be argued maybe it got a little ahead of itself, but you know I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that it should be back over two dollars. I mean, we're getting those kind of recommendations from analysts. Mm-hmm. Um, conservatively speaking, if you looked at a margin of approximately five hundred dollars an ounce at a hundred thousand ounces, just for argument's sake. And, you know, that would be $50 million of cash flow. And if you put, you know, a multiple seven to ten times that, it start, starts to indicate that the stock price should be up at that level, I would all think. All right, well, thank you. That's all the time we've got. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have you back again to uh, uh, keep track of what you're doing, and, uh, and hopefully you'll have another happy report for us the next time you're back. Uh, thanks so much for, for being with us, Mike. Now, next up, we've got Scott Moore. He's the president of another very interesting company, a very unique company, Uh, called Dasha Capital, Inc., and we'll be back to talk to him about that. If you're interested in strategic metals or rare earth metals and and don't know how to go about investing in them, you might want to stick around and listen to what Scott has to say. We'll be right back with Scott Moore. Markets up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Voice America Business Network.
Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where their primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. For further information, Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, last week was the first week of the summer season uh, for Turning Hard Times into Good Times, and I made the mistake of saying that all our companies were involved with gold in one form or another, and actually... That was not true because I forgot that one of our full-time sponsors, our full sponsors, namely Dasha Capital, in fact, is not involved with gold or silver either. Rather, it invests in rare earth metals. And Dasha has approximately 22.6 million shares outstanding. It closed uh, recently. I think yesterday I saw the price at about 60 cents Canadian or 58 cents U.S. So that gives it a market cap, a very small market cap of $13 million dollars. This is a fa- really a fascinating business model, and where I find it of interest is in the fact that it reflects a growing demand for exotic metals that have grown out of new technologies, um, discoveries that are changing the world at an ever-accelerating pace. And some of these metals we're about to talk about, frankly, I've never heard of before. Uh, to know how to invest in these metals, then, each of these markets are unique, uh, very, very different than, say, investing in gold or silver or copper or those major big model, uh, markets where there's futures markets and they're deep markets. But Dosh is using its expertise to help investors do exactly that. So I'm very pleased to have with me Scott Moore. Um, he's here to help us understand uh, about Dasha and how it's investing and how you might be able to participate as an investor in the company. Welcome, Scott, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Pleasure to be with you. Well, it's really good to have you. Um, in looking at your website, I see various terms used there, and I want to make sure that we start out by understanding exactly what we mean by these terms, industrial metals, strategic metals, rare earth metals. Could you give us some definition for those terms? Certainly, and you alluded to it a bit of it in your, in your uh, preamble there, looking at materials that are not generally traded on a, on a major, major metals exchange, like the London's Metals Exchange, where you'll see nickel and copper and lead and zinc traded every day. Um, these strategic metals are usually much smaller in terms of the, the markets that are, are being utilized, but typically are traded on a contract basis. And so, but as uh, as you can see in terms of the the name strategic, a lot of these things are uh, these metals are irreplaceable, unsubstitutable, have no uh, uh, no no way to change it into to use something else to as a substitute, and as such are extremely strategic in nature. Some you know quite substantially more than others, mm-hmm. particularly the rare earth elements. And in many cases, I believe it's probably true, at least there's certain cases I've seen in the past, uh, that the uh, uh, even though these metals are crucial to some technology, the actual cost of, of compared to the total, say, the price of a car or the price of a computer or whatever you're talking about is relatively small, so that they're, so that they're, uh, so that the prices can rise fairly dramatically and still not affect the uh, the ultimate sale of the product. Is that true? Yeah, I think a lot of people use the example of the, the Toyota Prius vehicle where it's the single single largest user of rare earth elements uh, globally with about 15 or 16 kilograms of material primarily used in the batteries. Um, uh, so something about uh, $8 or $10 worth of material. Um, but you look at there's a, one element that goes in that car that's helped to make the magnets more efficient, and that's a material called dysprosium. And dysprosium, you know, there's only about a quarter ounce of dysprosium uh, uh, in, uh, in, the, um, in, in the magnets themselves, but that's worth about $15. So, and if you don't have that dysprosium in the magnets, you do not have a car, period. It just doesn't work. So, you know, can, the, can a $40,000 Toyota Prius 
you know, be able to handle, you know, $50 worth of dysprosium. Of I certainly course. think that the uh, price elasticity, uh, certainly it can substantiate that. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I want to get into some of these specific metals and learn more about them. But before we get there, I want to make sure that I understand more about the concept behind your business plan in general. You mentioned on your website that you think many of these industrial metals are inefficiently priced. Of course, inefficient markets provide uh, alert investors with a chance to make a lot of money. Um, you know, that's smart investors are looking for inefficiencies. So they want to find something that's, that's terribly undervalued. Uh, no doubt that's what you're, what you're looking at as well. But uh, can you explain to our listeners why, in general, some of the markets that you have chosen uh, to play in are inefficient? What, what makes them inefficient? Yeah, we certainly look at uh, any time you have a contract market that there's no open traded price, uh, markets tend to be a little bit less efficient. And certainly from the perspective of uh, capital flowing into markets, you know, the ability, there's no way for uh, the average investor to be able to buy uh, a strategic metal in some format. So the only way they can buy it is through some sort of ETF or type vehicle if one was available. And you've seen that recently with the advent of palladium and, and, and platinum ETF vehicles, again, where capital is flowing into a market, which is, well, some may argue is a precious metals market in palladium and platinum, is really an industrial metal used primarily in auto catalysts, right? Sure. So you know, we see that, the, that capital is flowing into markets where they feel that the prices are substantially lower where they should be because it's based on a contract market. I'm an end user. I'm Sony. I buy what I need for the next three months to build my television sets, and I come back to market three months later, and I buy my next you know, quarter worth of material, as opposed to any capital market forces coming onto this, uh, the stage and saying, well, we believe that, and like the example before, that $15 of dysprosium that goes in the Toyota Prius, well, we think Toyota should be able to pay $100 for that material and not affect the overall price of that vehicle. So that pricing should be much higher than where it is mm-hmm. because it's unsubstitutable, irreplaceable, comes from you know, a, a Chinese country, uh, a communist country, is, is, is 100% made virtually in, uh, in China, and there's no global source or stockpile available that I can purchase as, a, as an end user. So those, in, those, those you know, features would certainly enable that this is an inefficient market, that pricing should be substantially higher from where it is today. And if I'm not mistaken, most of these metals, uh, they're not primary mines that are producing these things. They're not the primary product coming out of the mines. Usually they're byproducts. Is that right? Yeah, certainly that's the case of, um, you know, if, if you look at, uh, I'll give you an example, selenium or tellurium, you know, these are strategic metals, again, unsubstitutable. They're primarily a, a, a byproduct of copper mining. Mm-hmm. Uh, rare earths, uh, you know, the, the largest deposit of rare earths in, in, in production right now is uh, an iron ore mine in northern China. Where it's mm-hmm. 80, 80% iron ore, 20% rare earths. So, again, it's a byproduct uh, marketplace. Um, but ultimately... You look at you know, a primary production, little exists of primary production. Now, there are mines around the world that are trying to come into production as primary uh, rare earth uh, suppliers, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it hasn't uh, come to fruition as of yet. Well, that would be kind of difficult, it seems to me, as a person who, you know, I mean, I follow the, the gold and silver and copper markets and things like that, mining those metals. But, you know, these markets are fairly small, even though these items are very large, and then, you know, if someone else comes in and starts to produce a lot of it, they can put you out of business, could they not? Well, and that's pretty much what happened back in uh, 1998. There's uh, Chevron had a, an operating um, 
uh, rare earth mine in, in Mountain Pass, California, uh, which is now something owned by a private company called Mollycorp, uh, which was shut down where a lot of low-cost, low-value uh, rare earths came into the marketplace, and ultimately the prices went down below their operating costs, and then they had to, uh, to close uh, operations. So certainly when you have a market that's not very big, I think the global expectation of the market today for rare earths is about a billion dollars mm. and growing to, you know, somewhere predicted between four and five billion dollars in the next five years. Um, the supply side response is very limited and the demand side, again, is each material has different applications, so there's not a, uh, an uncorrelated uh, demand profile. But one thing that's clear in, 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 in particularly the rare earth space is you, know, you can't pick and choose which rare earths you want to get. You know, when you process these rare earths, you get them all. So right. you end up having to sell some to some customers, some to other customers, and it becomes a more of a contractual market. You know, you look to have offtake agreements because there's no market I can sell my material into or quote off a, off a metals exchange to get my material. Okay, so you're looking to Dasha is looking to take advantage of of these nuances of these markets. Um, how do you expect to make money? You mentioned, uh, I think, I, again, on your website that you're not really actively trading very much. You're, you're looking to buy undervalued uh, rare earth metals uh, in the belief that they're going to rise, I guess, dramatically in some cases in the future. Um, first of all, where are you buying these metals? Where are you getting them? Yeah, we're, we're buying them uh, directly um, in China, uh, which, uh, as I mentioned, is uh, supplies about somewhere between 97 and 99 percent of the world's uh, rare earth elements uh, on the demand side. Um, so virtually, you, if you want to be in rare earths and you want to buy them today, you have to buy them in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that China has done over the last several years is you know, they've been building up their manufacturing base. Uh, a lot of the consumer electronics are being built there, so the uses of these materials are growing within China, so they're not looking, they've been cutting back on the amount of material available for export. Um, you know, even China last year talked about cutting back exports completely to the West, uh, and anybody who had a deposit outside of China in terms of a, a junior mining company, their stocks rose dramatically on the basis of you know their deposits would automatically become more valuable. Uh, but we're purchasing materials directly in China. We're exporting them to a LME-approved um, warehouse. Right now we have two warehouse locations, one in Korea, one in Singapore, and uh, building the stockpile in both those locations. So are you hoping, though, to take advantage of markets when, let's say, the price, there's a, there's a supply squeeze or there's not enough supply to meet demand and the price just skyrockets to leave a little bit of, of some uh, precious uh, item go at a, at a very high price and then, uh, and then um, you know, raise cash, uh, generate uh, income that way? Is that how you're planning to move forward? Uh, that, that's part of it, yeah. Certainly we have the, the ability to trade up to about 15%. In anticipation of a larger gain? Yeah, we have the ability to trade up to about 15% of our uh, of our stockpile to take advantage of you know what we perceive to be stock market or price volatility. Yeah, there, mm-hmm. There's a short squeeze on one in particular material that we have in uh, uh, which we view as a short term squeeze. We could then sell our material uh, and then buy back at a lower price uh, uh, at a later date. But certainly the overall trend is you know buy and hold strategy to give investors you know direct access to physical and finished product without any associated mining risk. We don't have to drill holes. We don't have to do pre-feasibility studies. We don't have to have a big CapEx. There's no CapEx in our projects 
to put a mine into. We don't have to apply for environmental permitting. Right. You know, anything that's similar to what happens in the, in the typical junior mining space as you advance a project and de-risk it, we've gone right to the end, the end product. So your costs, uh, your costs are relatively low. Your burn rate would be how much uh, per month, let's say? Uh, yeah, it's it's a fraction of a percent of our overall net yeah. asset value. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's, it's very you, small. We have a very small, dedicated team. Um, you know, our warehouse locations, again, we're sitting in LME warehouses, which are, you know, sitting with tons of uh, uh, of copper and lead uh, and nickel ingots. And, you know, we have a container of material that's 20 feet in and lengthens worth you know several million dollars. So we're not taking up a lot of warehouse space. We're not burning a lot of capital in in terms of holding our material. Okay, um, I wanted to get into some of these uh, different metals and then talk a little bit about their specific uses and the supply and demand for them. But we're just not going to have time. We're actually just about out of time now. Do you think the company's going to have to go back to the markets to raise some money anytime soon? Or, or well, we, we just finished raising money in, uh, in in March of 2010. Uh, uh-huh. That uh, stock will become free trading at the end of next week. So actually, we'll have approximately 72 million shares outstanding. And that sixty cents gives us a market cap of almost uh, forty-four million dollars uh, uh, on uh, July twenty-fifth. Um, so we were look like to be fully invested on that latest round of financing, and we hope to be back into market to raise more capital and go out there and increase the size of our stockpile. All right, very interesting company, uh, very interesting concept, a different vision. I guess, uh, I guess one thing, just one thing before we go, because we'll have you back on sometime soon, and we'll get into these specific metals, but. Uh, you, you've got to have the people uh, to know these markets. Uh, your background must be something um, that would that would lend itself to this. Uh, could you just give us a little bit of background on yourself and, and other people there that are yeah, there? That, yeah, that certainly. Yeah, sorry. Certainly, my my background is uh, I have an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management in Northwestern University outside of Chicago. Uh, and have been in the finance business for for many many years, and and certainly focus on the junior mining space for the last uh, half dozen or so. But one of our key employees within this space is a fellow called Alistair Neal. Alistair Neal has been in the rare earth space for the last 15 years. Uh, resides full time in China, and is absolutely critical in obtaining our materials uh, in a very small and and uh, uh, closed market. You know, uh, he was at one time ran Neal Materials. Uh, rare earth business in China, which is about a you know, $500 million downstream producer of uh, rare earth uh, magnets and, and user of, uh, of rare earth elements. So certainly he understands the space, has been in it for you know, a decade and a half, uh, not just like the last six months, like a lot of the, uh, the new, newcomers to the space, so really understand and, is, and clearly as a, an expert in the space. Okay, Scott. Well, I'm, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, we're going to have you back again uh, to talk more about uh, about these metals and their specific uses, uh, supply and demand, and so forth. I find it very, very interesting, but honestly, a very difficult place for individuals to invest. So, folks, if you're interested in investing in rare earth metals, you might want to take a look at Dasha and study their study this company. I think it's, a, it's probably as good a way as any to play this uh, these very, very unique markets uh, that require a great deal of study before you can really understand them. So. Uh, folks, don't go away. We've got our special guest coming up with us next, Addison Wigan, a very interesting fella um, that is uh, a film producer, actually, and he's written a couple of best, uh, he's written a bestseller, um, and just a very interesting uh, fella who's going to talk to us about the markets and where he thinks we're going. Don't go away. We will be right back with Addison Wigan.
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Finross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try to you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really excited to have with me Addison Wigan. Addison is the executive publisher of Agora Financial, LLC, uh, described as a fiercely independent economic forecasting and financial research firm. Uh, and having looked at uh, the work that Addison has produced, I can tell you it is independent, fiercely so. He's the creator and editorial uh, um, director of Agora Financial's daily five-minute forecast, uh, editorial director of Agora Financial's uh, flagship publication, The Daily Reckoning, and co-writer and executive producer of the acclaimed film, IOUSA. Addison is also the founder of Agora Entertainment, executive producer and co-writer of the documentary film IOUSA. It was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize uh, at the 2008 Sundance Film Festival and the 2009 Critics' Choice Award for the Best Documentary Feature. It was also shortlisted for a 2009 Academy Award. Uh, He is the author, Addison is the author of the companion book uh, for the film IOUSA and a three-time New York Times bestseller a selling author. Wigan uh, authored the international bestseller, The Demise of the Dollar, and Why It's Even Better for Your Investments. Addison will offer his views uh, now, so we're really happy to have with us Addison Wiggins. Uh, Addison Wigan, welcome, Addison, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks for having me, Jay. It's good to be here. Well, it's really great to have you. Uh, we promoted your appearance uh, to this show uh, on the topic of deflation now, inflation later. And I picked that topic on the basis of an essay you recently wrote. Uh, and I do want to get into those, to your thoughts on those issues if we can a little later. But you and I were talking before, actually yesterday, before the show started, and you were interested also uh, in talking about another topic that you call the assault on enterprise. And this is a topic, I believe, of, uh, of an upcoming show you have in Vancouver that you put on an annual event. Uh, in broader terms, the, term is, the, the, the theme is um, how to invest in an age of rising taxes, Wall Street crooks, and government boondoggles. Uh, back in 2008, your topic for the Agora Financial Investment event was View from the Peak, and that was just weeks before the Lehman Brothers collapse and what then uh, turned out to trigger what many have called the worst economic crisis since the 1930s. Uh, but then our savior, the uh, Federal Reserve Bank, and our Treasury Department stepped in and made everything right again, or so we're told. That's what they tell us on CNBC and Bloomberg every day anyway. So the party line is everything is onward and upward. So my question to you is, why are you worried about an assault on enterprise if everything is heading back to normal? Well, if we look what happened, uh, the policy response to the collapse of Lehman Brothers um, and then the ensuing uh, collapse of the stock market, and in fact, the collapse of the CRB index, which is uh, the most dramatic of all. Um, we had mayhem in the in the credit markets and in the financial markets, and uh, you know, the Treasury Secretary at the time waltzed over to to uh, to Congress and gave them a three three page proposal. On how to deal with it, asking for seven hundred billion dollars, and that set in motion this whole era of bailouts and and, uh, and motion by uh, regulators in Washington to react to what they what what they perceived to be uh, the destruction of the uh, financial markets. And we were promised at the time that if they spent all this money um, and even at, at, by borrowing. At, at, 
extreme deficit levels and adding to the national debt, that uh, you know we would be able to get the economy back on track. Um, unfortunately, the economy was on the wrong track in the first place, and that's why yeah. it collapsed. Uh, and what we're left with is a larger share of government intervention into the economy than what we had before, but we don't have any uh, real economic uh, progress in terms of creating new uh, new companies, new new employment, uh, new products for people to purchase and make profits off. What we have is this uh, sudden renewed belief in American uh, or uh, government intervention mm-hmm. in the markets, and mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, uh, that will, what what I believe that's going to lead to is uh, an era of rising taxes. They have to pay for this mm. somehow. Uh, we're going to see massive tax increases, and we're going to uh, also see um, because of how complicated the tax system is, we're going to see a lot of the loopholes and things closed that mm. that people had discovered uh, in ways to save money from from putting into the government coffers, uh, and all that money is going to go down the hole because uh, my personal belief is government can't can't uh, fulfill those promises. They can't create employment for people. No. All they can do is borrow from other people that have money and hand it out to people that don't have it. They don't mm-hmm. actually create any new enterprises, um, and we're really just on the cusp of what, what we believe is the uh, the coming assault on enterprise, people that have ideas and want to get into the capital markets, borrow the money that they need to, to put their ideas in action and actually employ people and move forward, uh, be really reinventing the economy in the wake of the credit bust. Yeah, those people are not, those small companies are not able to get the capital. They're not able to, uh, to really grow the economy. You mentioned the government's... Um, can't create employment. Well, they do create employment, but they're not real jobs. They're makeshift jobs. I mean, they send people out to do uh, to do uh, census uh, collection information, or they I guess they can they can hire a bunch of police policemen to go around and spy on each other, or we can send people overseas and to, and to beat the hell out of other countries. We can do all that. I mean, government can create jobs, can't they? But they don't create wealth. That's right. Absolutely, they don't create enterprise, or they don't help create enterprises that produce wealth, and in turn. Grow, uh, grow the economy, and that's one of the refrains. While making the documentary Iowa USA, when we went around, we interviewed um, you know, movers and shakers from all from the financial industry and from Washington, just to get a, a sense of what people were thinking prior to 2008, when we already perceived that there was a, a growing uh, spending problem in Washington and just a uh, denial of the, the uh, deleterious effects of deficit spending and the growing national debt. Even under a Republican administration, the people who are supposed to care about fiscal responsibility, mm-hmm. and to a person, you know, we interviewed uh, Ron Paul, Alan Greenspan, uh, Warren Buffett, Robert Rubin, uh, Paul O'Neill, people that had been in positions of either influence because of what they say when... Uh, it gets reported in the media, or uh, actually making policy, policy makers. And to a person, they all believed that, uh, you know, once, once we get the economy back on track, then we can, uh, we can address some of these, these broader macro issues, unfortunately. No. <laughs> and how are they going? Now, uh, so let me ask you, though, IOUSA, how, where can people find this 
this movie because I've never seen it honestly, and it's one I, I definitely want to see now. Where can we where can we see it? Can we? Well, just, if you go to agorafinancial.com, uh, we still have copies of the uh, the documentary available through our website. But in fact, what we we sold the film to the Peterson Foundation. Maybe just I'll give you a little bit of background of what mm-hmm. the film is. Uh, we followed then Comptroller General of the country, David Walker, mm-hmm. uh, around on what he called the fiscal wake-up tour. He was trying to educate people outside of Washington um, to what was actually happening to the finances of the country. So he went on this fiscal wake-up tour. He was speaking to business groups and rotary clubs and uh, state and local government assemblies, trying to educate people, look, this is what's happening, especially as the baby boomers begin to retire and the entitlement programs eat up on an automatic basis, a larger portion of the revenues that come into the government, we just can't afford to keep on spending more than we take in in tax receipts. And this is, this is prior to the credit crisis, prior to the stimulus and bailout period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we followed him around and then interviewed uh, a number of, of people uh, in positions of either making policy or uh, of influence in the financial markets to get their opinions on what was happening. And most people thought that, you know, it, it was very much an unsustainable situation, 2005, 2006, the height of the housing bubble. But the level of alarm uh, was not very high at that time. It wasn't until 2008, after we finished the film and, and, um, and had our premiere, that Lehman Brothers collapsed and, and the effects of running an economy the way we do uh, really began to take take hold. Mm-hmm. So, so, so your timing was pretty good then. Um, I, I mean, in in terms of uh, forecasting problems and and warning people. Yeah, it was interesting because we began uh, the daily reckoning. A lot of the ideas that are in the film come from our daily work in mm-hmm. the daily reckoning, which is a, a daily email that we write, um, and we. We began that in 1999. We were looking at all of the kind of crazy decisions that people were making during the tech bubble, the justifications they were coming up for paying the multiples they were on, uh, you know, on Amazon and some of the tech companies, Cisco. Um, and you know, at that time, it was kind of a lighthearted approach to looking at what people believed about the American markets and the American economy. But then after the tech wreck and after 9-11, things got a little bit more serious, uh, and the policy response from the government was such that we saw a mutation of that you know, frothy tech market uh, and collapse, a mutation of that bubble into a housing and consumption bubble, which is exactly what had happened in Japan 10 mm-hmm. years ago. So. So we, we had been following and forecasting, um, you know, this mutating bubble for a number of years before we even began uh, looking at the resulting deficit and, uh, and problems with the national debt. Mm-hmm. This is all leading up to the housing and, and, uh, and consumption bubble, which, which collapsed in 2008. And, so you, we, we, and uh, the, the film was well received, obviously. Before, from... Oh, excuse me. Go ahead. I said the film was well received. Obviously, it, it was highly acclaimed. Yeah, in fact, it, uh, we held a premiere on August twenty second, two thousand and eight, and we did a simulcast uh, to four hundred theaters around the country. Our premiere was in Omaha, where um, Warren Buffett was, and he had agreed to sit in on a town hall 
uh, following the film that was also broadcast to 400 theaters around the country. Mm. And we think, we, we figured about 55,000 people saw the film that night, which is a pretty, oh. pretty sizable audience for a documentary on the national debt. Mm-hmm. But our, our aim at that time was to jumpstart a, a national conversation about uh, deficit spending and about the rising national debt and about the entitlement programs. Unfortunately, six weeks later, uh, Lehman Brothers did go bankrupt, and right. we sort of hopped the tracks to a whole new level of crisis. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Did the uh, did the film address at all the monetary issue? That is, um, you know, um, an asset-based monetary system as opposed to the liability system, the fiat system that we have. Well, we did look at uh, in a lot of our work in the Daily Reckoning and in the books that we publish. We look at um, what we call the the monetary crime of the 70s, which was uh, taking, taking down Bretton Woods and the last vestige mm-hmm. of any, um, you know, dollar standard, I mean, sure. gold standard, gold standard that, yeah. that the world could rely on. And, um, and, in fact, in Demise of the Dollar, which you brought up earlier, uh, it, I just looked at the, the mutation of the global economy as we moved from the Bretton Woods standard onto a, um, what we call the great dollar standard, where everyone... Mm-hmm uses the, the dollar as a reserve currency of the world, and many of the countries around the world, most notably China, hold, uh, hold treasuries and dollars as a reserve of their own wealth. Mm. And, the, you know, the, just the, the multitude of problems that, uh, and dislocations that has caused since the 70s. And I think, mm. we're, you know, a lot of those things are coming home to roost right now. Yeah, they seem to be increasingly hesitant to hold those dollars now. If we, uh, if I have it correct, they're they're certainly buying more gold. It seems looking to diversify into other currencies. So yeah, and even one, encouraging their citizens to uh, to buy gold and absolutely. Not hold dollars. <laughs> and, and the Chinese people understand gold uh, much better than Americans do. I think that the Americans are probably the most ignorant people in the world when it comes to owning gold. That's my view of things. Uh, I think we've been dumbed down to a great extent. We've been told not to. Uh, not to not to um, to trust in gold, but trust in our leaders and the paper currency. Right. Uh, yeah, we've come to believe that you know the United, the U.S. economy is the most dynamic in the world, and, and yeah. currency. You know, we've in a way we're victims of our our own success because the currency, the, the, our own currency, has gained uh, traction for most of the post-war post war period, and um, and you know we're a whole generation into to kids who have never lived with anything else, and they right. just believe that's the way the world is. Yeah. Well, I'd like to get back to this, this theme of assault on enterprise. A, a, a little while ago, earlier today, I noticed I, I was just watching a, a little segment on CNBC, and they were talking about the, the problem with small companies, small businesses. They are the creators of jobs. You mentioned uh, new ideas and new products and so on and so forth. It's not the big guys. It's like in the mining industry. The little, tiny little mining companies are the ones that come up with new ideas uh, to explore and develop and find wealth. The big guys then put that gold into production. But it's, it's with the larger companies, they're just not creating new jobs now. And there's a lot of concern among the mainstream uh, about that. And, and uh, the people on CNBC essentially were saying, well, it's just lagging. You know, we're going to get there. It's just, you know, we're seeing job, we're seeing, we're seeing growth, we're seeing income, uh, you know, growth and profits and so forth from large corporations. But there's no confidence from the small business owners at this point in time. Um, do you have any 
any sense of that? I mean, why is that the case? I mean, CNBC, they were just assuming that, of course, you know, we've got the right policies in place and everything is going to come along just all right. You just have to wait a little bit this time. This, this, this cycle is a little different, but uh, don't worry. The little guys are coming around. The small businesses will come around. What do you think? Well, I think the problem with that theory is that um, even if corporations like the S&P 500, if they're posting earnings and those are grabbing the headlines, you know, they beat estimates uh, for retail numbers or, or banks beat their financials, um, mostly what's happening is people are shuffling uh, paper contracts or mortgages or whatever, they're uh, processing paper and taking fees off the top. So the larger corporations are not creating products and selling them. They're, they're, uh, they're engaging in what one of our analysts called, uh, before he died a couple years ago, a uh, late degenerate capitalism where people are just shuffling things around and taking a piece off the top. Mm. Um, I, I honestly believe, and in fact, I'm working on a new documentary project where I'm trying to prove that the sole economic driver, the sole creator of wealth, is the small entrepreneur, somebody who's out there, way out on the margin, coming up with an idea that is going to be groundbreaking and sort of change uh, whole industries or change economies and, uh, and then be able to put people to work in new and creative ways. I went, as part of that project, I went and interviewed the Harvard professor, uh, uh, Clayton Christensen, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he confirmed some of my suspicions about creative destruction and disruptive technologies where um, even, uh, you, you mentioned the mining industry, but mm-hmm. in, in all industries where the big players, the, the, the companies that grab the headlines because they employ so many people and their profits are usually outsized, you know, larger than the imagination, um, they generally don't delve into the smaller areas, the small marginal uh, areas, because they get their biggest profits from, from um, products that have the largest margins. And uh, the example that he used was GM was making most of its money off these big uh, SUVs and big trucks. Sure. They didn't even bother with the smaller uh, fuel-efficient cars. Toyota sure. kind of occupied that space. And then over time, over a long period of time, they were able to reinvest their own profits and take over uh, the mid-sized market. And then, then they're competing heavily directly with where GM, GM's bread and butter was. And I think that in periods of economic crisis, we see that the bigger companies go for those big profits, the big mm-hmm. margins, and, uh, and then just leave, leave the, uh, the smaller, innovative, and more creative is wide open for entrepreneurs to come into. Mm-hmm. The trouble is, if they can't get access to the capital markets, if they can't get access to credit, like what we've been seeing since 2008, then they kind of they have to wait around until until there uh, there is a larger appetite for risk for uh, funding new enterprise. Mm-hmm. And uh, and at the same time, as we were talking about before, you have government trying to regulate this industry. You know, we've seen financial regulation or reform being debated now and almost passed. The healthcare industry is under the gun. Uh, we bailed out all the auto industry. Uh, yeah. they're, they're trying to control the, the upper reaches of every industry, and it makes it very difficult for, for creative entrepreneurship to, to get a foothold and thrive. Well, and that, that's really that's the, the theme, that's the uh, 
hypothesis, if you will, of the conference that we're hosting next week in Vancouver. We're bringing a bunch of people together from around the world to discuss this idea that we really ought to be letting uh, entrepreneurs get a foothold and reinvent things. Because if if ever we needed, uh, you know, a spark of ideas and uh, energy, you know, at the time when when you know unemployment is above ten percent, above fifteen mm-hmm. percent, if you look at the bottom line numbers, yeah. No, that's. I, I'm wondering if you've uh, uh, your new film, the one you're working on now. When do you expect it will be out? We are trying to get a what we uh, you know like a uh, festival draft or a festival cut together by the middle of October because we oh. want to uh, submit to Sundance again. Oh, interesting. And uh, and have you found in your research uh, that the large companies sometimes will buy out the small guys and just shelve them, put them aside, so that they don't have to worry about competition? They do, um, and the other thing that happens is they they get sometimes they get the idea that they ought to spin off uh, pieces of their own company and try to compete in that market, um, but then those spin offs become like orphan children, <laughs> yeah. and they 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 uh, you know they sort of die on the vine out there. So, do you expect to have some examples of those kinds of um, situations in your documentary? Yeah, we do have some examples already. Um, one of them is Target. Another one is Staples, and we have people that were involved in bringing. I was looking for what in this particular segment of the film, I was looking for mainstream applications of the same idea, so that a sure. wider audience could sort of grasp it. But we're also looking at biotech companies, uh, alternative energy companies, stuff, ideas, and people that are really out on the fringe, uh, because we expect, as a financial forecasting firm, that that's where you know, the most game-changing entrepreneurship is going to take place. Well, that's, certainly that's really even the, the most important, uh, important segment of the economy. Yeah. Uh, I would say that in terms of what you're doing and what I'm doing, um, you know, it's been sort of the fringe in our, in our industry that's done well since, uh, say, 2000, since the equity markets peaked in 2000. So it's sort of, uh, I mean, it's by definition, and we were talking in the previous segment to a company that's in, involved in, uh, you know, in exotic metals, and, um, you know, you're looking for inefficient markets, right? And it seems to me that if you can capitalize on the inefficiencies that are created by government, you know, all of these interventions in the economy keep the markets from working efficiently. We talk about malinvestment that occurs because of the huge amount of money that's pumped into the into the monetary system, we saw it with the dot coms in the in the um, you know in the 90s, and then of course the housing market uh, bubble. All of these are uh, bad uses of capital, malinvestment, and then though there are great opportunities that flow from 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 those if you can recognize them, right? Yeah, absolutely. We you know we, we look at it uh, at, in terms of. Um, the way von Mises would have described price signals. Entrepreneurs, um, when there are bubbles, get the wrong price signals. The housing, example, uh, housing market is a perfect example. There were, the credit was so easy to get in terms of uh, new commercial projects and uh, new housing developments, um, both at the corporate level, like Beezer and those big uh, Toll Brothers, the big housing project developers, and even on the, the local entrepreneurial level, it was, the perception was that housing would always go up and that commercial real estate would always go up. So it was really easy to get money, and the government was behind it with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac buying up the mortgages that were, were uh, put out on the market, bundling them up and selling them on to investors in Europe. 
the whole system was just sending the wrong signals to entrepreneurs. You had people that were giving up, you know, lifetime occupations to become real estate brokers and, mm-hmm. and mortgage people and appraisers. The, the entire industry realigned itself. I mean, the entire economy realigned itself to support this massive boom in, uh, in housing. And the demand for those houses just wasn't there mm-hmm. all along. It was, it was really the result of an of a easy credit uh, era, an era that was thriving uh, in in the era of a policy response to a separate bubble that had collapsed, which was um, which was the tech bubble, and there was no real asset behind many of the companies that had risen in the in the tech bubble. So, mostly what we've seen in the economy over the last ten, fifteen years are a series of sort of fictitious. Uh, what, what I call the era of fictitious capitalism, where people thought that they were engaging in capitalist enterprises, but really all they were doing was uh, chasing uh, rising uh, paper <laughs> right, and, and skimming off the top. And it, uh, I don't know, it's, it's very destructive in the long term. It time. is very people destructive getting, because you're, getting you're taking scarce resources and, and allocating in a very inefficient, in a very inefficient way because yeah, you're sending... Absolutely false signals to the market. Um, so we've got this specter of, of, of the housing market now. We're, real estate, I know you wrote a column recently on commercial real estate. What are your thoughts there? We've got a lot, a lot of problems ahead of us. Well, I think that uh, we, a couple years ago in 2007, as we started seeing trouble in the residential market, we forecast that um, the second shoe to drop would be uh, commercial real estate, and and I think that uh, we have seen trouble in the commercial real estate market, but we haven't seen the full full extent of it yet. There's there's a lot more to come, and it has to do with things like last week we got a report that um, consumers are retrenching and actually trying to repair their balance sheets at a much faster rate than we were even forecasting. We were mm. expecting that people would. Start looking. Oh, I can't spend. I got to pare back on my uh, on my uh, use of credit cards and my my personal uh, debt load. And they're doing it at a much faster rate. Seventy percent of the economy is consumer spending, and the commercial market, uh, commercial real estate market, is heavily dependent on people being willing to go to your local uh, you know, shopping mall and 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 open up their credit cards. And if they're retrenching then a lot of the uh, the projections moving forward that people had in place for investing in commercial projects, it just disappears like any other bubble. And uh, I think that uh, we don't have any d- data to support it yet, but we're, we're suspecting that um, commercial real estate is still... Still not a very good investment, and in fact, it's gonna it's gonna rear its ugly head pretty soon. Yeah, and the commercial, uh, uh, with respect to residential, are we through that one yet, or is, do we still have some ways to go there? I don't think we're through that one yet, and simply because, um, especially where we had such a high rise in uh, expectations for the resi- residential market, um, the the flip side of the of the bubble, the bust, generally overcompensates for itself, and we see it go lower than is rationally expected as well. Yeah. People get we, irrationally pessimistic, and I don't think we've seen that yet. I, I think that people are still holding on. We're we're not quite through the uh, you know there are people are 
are still looking at the values of their own homes and thinking, oh, I can, if I just hold on a little bit longer, I, I should be fine. Mm-hmm. But they haven't reached that level of pessimism yet that uh, you generally see at the bottom of a market. Right. And certainly in New York here, I don't know about your markets. You're, you're down there in Baltimore or Washington. You're probably pretty strong because the government keeps grabbing more resources and then probably one of, the, one of the best places to be is in the Washington area. But in the New York area, which also has the benefits, of course, of a highly subsidized Wall Street economy, nonetheless, uh, what we're hearing and what I'm reading here is that the banks are so overburdened with bad loans, with bad mortgages, that they simply can't process the paper. So there's a huge amount of of uh, defaulted uh, properties yet that have yet to hit the market. So my, my thinking is, for whatever it's worth, is that we may have quite a ways to go yet. Yeah, I think that that's true. Uh, we, there there are a number of indications uh, that the, the, what they call the shadow inventory in the real estate market is much larger than the actual inventory that's, that's sitting out there trying to, trying to move. And um, we, you know, we have a lot of reports of banks not even moving on the paperwork because they don't want to move it from an asset to a liability on their own books. And then they have to recognize and come up with more capital. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a while yet, I think. <laughs> Before we, we, you know, it's, it's a, like you say, it's a paper, paperwork shuffle that's uh, going to go on for a number of years. In another uh, article that you wrote recently, you talked about, um, and I can't remember exactly which one it was, but it, you talked about uh, sort of the lies and half-truths that are coming out of the mouths of, of many of our CEOs and, and, and chief executive officers. I mean, there was a, a Goldman Sachs uh, CFO said something like, uh, generally, we're not involved in the derivatives business when, when, in fact, they had some $41 trillion of derivatives uh, on their books. But this whole thing of, I mean, it just seems to be so much, so much dishonesty on the, part of, of, on the part of Wall Street. Would you care to comment on that? I wouldn't call it dishonesty. I would call it willful, willful ignorance. Because, oh. uh, and Robert Rubin uh, said it really well when he had to, he was sort of parachuted from the chairmanship of Citigroup back down yes. into the... Uh, to the head of the board, uh, he he was there for a number of years while they found, or a number of months, it was about 18 months, while they found another CEO to take back operations back over. And then he got out right before uh, September 2008. <laughs> Just recently, three, four weeks ago, he testified before Congress, and he said, in, in the position that I was holding as a chairman and then acting CEO, it's not possible, it's not physically possible for a human being to know every transaction that goes on in the bank. The bank's just too big. I mm-hmm. think there is some truth to that, but at the same time, uh, that's, a, you know, that's a scapegoat position where he's not willing to even to attempt to understand the, uh, the mechanism that is producing record profits for the bank that he's the chairman of. So no. I, I wouldn't necessarily... Uh, Say that they're lying. I think that there's some truth to what to that position, but at the same time, um, they're not, you know, they're not willing to accept responsibility for presiding over a system that is essentially bankrupt, mm. morally bankrupt. Well, well, we're uh, we enjoy the world's reserve currency still. The United States does, so that allows us to do all kinds of things that you know to keep printing money, to expand our empire, or at least to keep a, an empire of a hundred. I don't know we're in one hundred and forty or one hundred and sixty or one hundred eighty countries, whatever. Um, you know, we one hundred eighty four uh, was the last I heard. One hundred eighty four. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're all over the world, and we can keep doing this. How long is this game going to go on? 
Well, I think it can go on for, for quite a long time. Um, in the crisis that arose in September of 2008, we had this curious reaction where people retrenched. The dollar index actually ra- rallied 22% in that month alone, and treasuries went negative for uh, a few trading days in early October. People were actually willing to give the U.S. government their money rather than uh, leave it in the stock market. And yeah. They would take a guaranteed loss of, you know, a point and a half or something uh, on a treasury and lose 40% in the stock market. So in that moment of crisis, the dollar and the treasury worldwide reasserted itself as the, the flight to safety trade. And in my mind, that emboldened uh, policymakers in Washington even more. They got this idea that, that they have you know, an, uh, an open checkbook. They can continue to, to paper over the crisis forever. But history shows that, that uh, that's just not true. It can go on for a long time, but it's clearly unsustainable, and uh, it can't go on forever. Well, I have to, uh, we have to get to the topic I wanted to talk about, deflation, inflation. Um, when uh, deflation now, uh, you, raised, you wrote another uh, article talking about uh, questioning whether or not we were looking at something akin to the 30s. What do you think? Are, I mean, it certainly seems to me that there's lots and lots of deflationary pressures because debt is growing so much more rapidly than income is growing. I think it gets to this whole malinvestment thing you were talking about. You know, we're not producing income. We're not producing real wealth. Uh, what are your thoughts on the deflation, inflation issue? Next week we're going to have James Turk. He's going to be our special guest. And James is an avowed inflationist. Uh, John Williams, the economist John Williams, has been with us in the past. These are a couple of people that, that see hyperinflation even in the future. Then we've had a lot of other people that are more on the deflation side. Where do you stand on, on this great inflation-deflation debate? Well, it's worth pointing out that both John and James contribute to the Daily Reckoning, and I cite them often in the five-minute forecast. Um, so I'm very aware of their arguments, uh, but I do think that we're we're facing deflationary pressures greater than um, than either one of them. Uh, I, th- I think that they recognize them, but they don't. I give them more weight. I give deflation a a, a higher rating right now, just because. Mm-hmm. There are so many bad loans in the world. It's not just a U.S. problem. It's a, it's a global problem. Um, there's so much debt out there that isn't backed by any kind of um, any uh, real liability on the other side. So, mm-hmm. so it's got to deflate in some way. Mm-hmm. We just don't know how it's going to deflate. So the, the, the government's uh, response is to attack each crisis or each, um, you know, each industry uh, independently and try to bail them out and hold them together as long as possible. Yeah. And that, to me, just kicks the can down the road. And that's why you have this long deflationary period, because if you take the car, the, uh, car industry, for example, if you just let the companies go out of business, they're going to have that, that whole industry is going to have to reinvent itself in a much quicker period of time. You've got to let the bad loans go bad. Mm-hmm. But the, the government's response is to throw a bunch of money at them, and that's the root of the inflationary argument, is that yeah. you throw money at a problem long enough, eventually the money is not going to be worth anything. And for economists, that's inflation. Yeah. You know, price, value, uh, price levels are going to go through the roof because the, the money itself is going to lose value. And I absolutely agree with that. But uh, what I, the period that I think we've entered into is similar to what just happened in Japan, 
which you've seen uh, an unwillingness of them, uh, the Japanese government, to let their banks go bad. They hold bad loans on their books for years and years and years. Nobody is willing to uh, open up their their own uh, their own pocketbooks and, and get the consumer spending again. So you end up in this kind of mushy. Uh, soft depression, which has been plaguing the Japanese for years. We wrote about it in 2002. We expected that to happen in the United States post-tech mm-hmm. bust. Uh, it looks like what happened was we had a more, uh, just a bigger bubble in the housing and consumption area, mm-hmm. and now we've entered into that phase where the government is actively involved in trying to keep more abundant industries alive um, Know, for their own personal gain, it looks like. They're vested interests trying to keep each other afloat, and, and that's just a recipe for stagnant, uh, a stagnant, stagnant economy. Right. Well, it's it, got these deflationary uh, pressures that are going to be around for a long period. Well, it seems to me, uh, Addison, that, that uh, when we have a, a, a liability monetary system, which is what we have instead of an asset-backed system, that whenever you create more money, I like to say that debt is the raw material from which money is manufactured. And so whenever we have these bailouts, we have more debt. I mean, it's not as if we're creating some some value out there that then can be sh- you know scattered over the economy. But in fact, the very thing that got us into the trouble we're in, we're adding more of. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Uh, the idea is that you can correct a uh, spending problem with even more spending, and yet we don't have anything to spend, so we're just borrowing. We're borrowing forward from the future, either by um, borrowing from the Japanese government or just issuing bonds that, that ultimately have to be paid back over a long period of time. And uh, in the interest level alone on the national debt is, I think it's up to over a third of the government's annual revenue. <laughs> and, and that's at a time with interest rates extremely low. Yeah, and it's just an absurd situation to find ourselves in, and yet Japan is in the same situation. Greece and Spain and Portugal, they're all in the same situation. So we're, we're all kind of in this boat together. Of, uh, I, I wonder, though, uh, we've had Bob Hoy. I don't know if you know Bob Hoy uh, from Vancouver, actually, uh, writes the institutional investor. And right. Hoy's point is that, uh, th- you know, when people like to compare us with Germany, that, in fact, there's a big difference in that Germany didn't, did not have well-developed credit markets when they went into their hyperinflation. And Hoy's thing is that when the senior currency, when you have these contraction periods in the credit markets, that the senior currency becomes the strongest currency because that's where the most debt is, and you're, you know, you're, you're um, covering your short position in the currency, in essence, by repaying your debt. So, very interesting discussion. I know that, actually, I think uh, Dr. Fred Goldstein's coming on after you, and I think he's an inflationist, so we might pick his brains on that a little bit. I'm sure he'll have something to say as he's listening right now, no doubt. Um, But uh, Addison, I want to thank you very much for coming on. We could go on and on. You have so many things to say, so much wisdom. How can people avail themselves to the daily reckoning and to your work on an ongoing basis? Well, the best thing, the easiest thing to do is just to go to thedailyreckoning.com. Daily Reckoning is free. We just uh, collect your email address and we email it out daily. That's the, the simplest way. And I believe we have a free report that is uh, is derived from our latest book, Financial Reckoning Day Fallout, on the on the website. So if you sign up for the Daily Reckoning, you'll get that report, and it kind of it's almost like a position paper of how we're viewing the markets moving forward, and includes this discussion of deflation and inflation and uh, 
and how we really think we're turning Japanese. Uh, we really think so. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for for all of your uh, for spending your time with us today, Addison. I know you're an extremely busy fellow. We'll uh, want to talk to you again sometime to keep sure. up with what you're doing on the uh, on the filmmaking front as well as your many other uh, activities. So, thanks again, um, Addison Wigan, for being with us, folks. Don't go away. We're going to have Dr. Fred Goldstein with us. He's a senior broker for Swiss America Trading Corporation, and Fred's going to have a lot of things to say about gold and silver. No doubt, he'll have something to say about the inflation deflation debate as well. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Fred Goldstein. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.ca. For further information, Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property, and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project, and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. Down. Try not to 
heart It's just a lovely ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. Well, we went uh, for a prolonged period of time uh, with Addison Wigan, and I didn't get a chance to name our second-hour sponsors. They are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Brigus Gold Corp., Everton Resources, Millrock Resources, and Golden Hope Mines. And one of our uh, sponsors for the first hour was Swiss America Trading Corporation. And uh, I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. Fred Goldstein. He is a senior broker for Swiss American Trading Corporation. It's located in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Fred has uh, has over 25 years experience in the sale of precious metals and numismatic coins. Uh, Fred joined Swiss America after a career in clinical dentistry, graduating from Tufts University School of Dental Medicine in 1974. He is a contributing writer to the newsletter Real Money Perspectives, and his articles uh, may be read at SwissAmerica.com. Dr. Goldstein has been a staunch supporter and fundraiser for the Gold Antitrust Action Committee uh, for over the past 10 years, and I applaud uh, Fred for that because I am also an enthusiastic supporter of the Gold Antitrust Action Committees. Those fellows were able and willing to stand out there and, and say some things that, were, uh, that, that appeared to be a little bit uh, on the lunatic fringe at one point in time, but a whole lot more people are starting to believe and understand that Bill Murphy and the gang had it had it right from the start uh, with respect to government intervention in the and manipulation of the gold markets. Well, anyway, Fred, welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks for having me today, Jay. Appreciate it. Well, it's really good to have you. We we spoke uh, at various conferences at times, and and I know that uh, you're providing an expertise in an area that I know not a whole lot about. I mean, I follow the bullion markets. I think I know something about about um, you know gold and why I want to own gold and I own gold uh, as well but in terms of buying and selling bullion and more specific products and uh, let's say specialized products like numismatics I know very little about it so I'm willing and hopeful to learn something from you Fred as I'm sure our uh, our large audiences as well uh, tell us a little bit about Swiss America and your role with the company uh, certainly uh, Swiss America Trading Corp is a primarily a sales organization, Jay, and we specialize in numismatic gold and silver coins. Uh, we sell coins and precious metals to the public and have been in business since 1982. We don't offer any paper gold products such as ETFs, gold mining equities, futures, or options. And we ship the actual physical metals to our clients or to the Delaware Depository for the client's precious metals, IRA, or individual retirement accounts. And I might add that all of the precious metal IRA accounts have fully allocated gold, silver, or platinum. And we're a company that takes pride in offering an array of educational resources to our prospective clients, as we believe an educated and informed consumer will eventually be a proactive investor. 
Yeah. And besides the website, SwissAmerica.com, with numerous commentaries, we offer newsletters, reports, DVDs, CDs. And, of course, any of your listeners can contact us, and we'd be glad to mail or email any of our reports. You know, Jay, I speak to hundreds of people each month, and so do the other brokers in our company. The majority of the people don't wind up as customers who purchase coins and metals. Hmm. But I believe most people will learn the need for gold and silver in today's uncertain economy, yeah. as well as the benefits of gold and silver in a balanced investment portfolio. Yeah. And I'm quite surprised that the average saver investor consumer has not embraced the hot asset concept. Well, you know what I think it is, Fred, is that the Americans, as I said to Addison, I think, I, think, I think the Americans are the most ignorant people on the face of the earth when it comes to buying gold and silver. I think we've been dumbed down. I think we've been programmed not to believe and not to understand it. If I talk to Chinese people, like my partner Chen Lin, and uh, Chinese people in general, they understand the need for gold, and they don't believe their governments. I mean, they tend, they tend to be very skeptical about our government. Our people, naively, I think, sort of just believe that what they're given on CNBC every day and what the Treasury Secretary says or Bernanke says must be the truth. Well, we're trying to do something about it. We're out there every day on the radio, television, Internet. Craig Smith, the president of Swiss America, has done extensive interviews on Fox News, CNBC, CNN. So we're doing our job to try to educate people and let them know what's really going on as well as what GAT has done for the last 10 years. Hey, uh, Fred, here I have to ask you about the IRA product. I mean, I think most people are not aware that you can actually put the metals in your IRA. Can you talk about that just a- for a minute? Absolutely. We sell the actual physical coins. Uh, we ship them to the Delaware Web Depository. We work with Entrust Arizona. And uh, the coins that we have had the best success with have been the Proof Gold and Silver American Eagle. Uh, just in the last two years, while gold is up approximately 40 to 40 to 50 percent, the Proof Gold American Eagles are up over 90 percent, hmm. uh, primarily because of the demand for the IRA gold products. And secondly, as long as the Mint is not manufacturing this product, which is a specimen, a, a very unique product, we're going to continue to put that in clients' IRA. But we have a vast array of bullion-related coins, American Eagles, Maple Leafs, Silver Eagles, Platinum Eagles, that we can also put into the IRA. But I have to stress that these are allocated accounts, and the client can take possession, then it becomes a tax liability. Okay, as long as they're... As long as they're with the depository, it's a tax-deferred account. There is no penalty or tax liability to set this up or roll it over from an old 401k or a current IRA. But if they actually take those products in possession, then it becomes a taxable event. Correct. I see. Interesting. Well, I guess, so people can, um, they can go to your website and learn how to set up an IRA for, Probably uh, for the it bullion. Would, it would be best for them to call us at 888-732-7411. That's one eight 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 seven three two seven four one one, or okay. they can go on SwissAmerica.com slash J Taylor and request some information. Okay, that sounds good. Well, um, gold is trading near its uh, all-time high. Not just a little bit under it. I actually, it's uh, a pretty good day today. I think gold's up about sixteen or seventeen dollars today. But it's uh, so. A lot of people, you know, I hear this said all the time, Fred. A lot of people think, eh, it's too late to buy gold. What are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely not. You know, first, gold and silver are well below their adjusted inflation highs. And considering the increases in the last 
20, 30 years in the cost of living as well as debt and credit just over the last few years, the prices of the metal, in my opinion, are severely undervalued. Then you have the recent allegations of the worldwide shortages of physical metals within unallocated accounts at the London Exchange and the naked short positions on the COMEX. So it has been Gata's contention for over 10 years that the bullion banks using derivatives and naked shorts have artificially manipulated the price of gold and silver. Right. Now investors are waking up to these paper gold Ponzi schemes and demanding physical possession. Listen to this. As the economic crisis in Europe and Greece unfolded, our sources on the ground in Germany said people were waiting in line to enter the coin shows to buy the available gold coins, which goes back to what you were just saying mm. about the, the concept. So to summarize, I would say sovereign debt problems and quantitative easing are setting the stage for what I believe is a potential hyperinflation at the same time that global gold demand is clearly outstripping world mine production which will certainly lead to significantly higher gold prices. Yeah. Fred, I, 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 I absolutely agree with you on that. Uh, given the enormous amount of money that's being created, too, you know, and the demise of the financial system and, and all, the, all, the, all the stuff that's going on, uh, I, we only have about a minute left here on this segment. I want you to come back uh, after the commercial break, but I want to ask you also, um, you referred to some items that you're putting in uh, the IRAs that are, those sound like numismatic or semi-numismatic uh, products, are they? Yes, they have a premium above their gold content, but they're also not being presently minted. So they're a specialized product, but once again, that's just one of the products that are offered for the IRA. A personal possession, we're offering the double eagles, and I can get into that further. Okay, and, and we'll do that uh, on the other side of the break. Uh, Fred, thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. We're going to come right back with Fred Goldstein, talk a little bit more about gold and silver markets, and then we'll do the wrap-up uh, with Fred uh, at the other side of the commercial break. We'll be back. Don't go away. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where their primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.ca. For further information, 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. This is the wrap-up of this week's two-hour show, and it's gone so darn fast. I don't know. There just isn't enough time to talk about everything, and I just realized that we're not going to have anywhere nearly enough time to talk to to Fred Goldstein here about the things he has to talk about, but I want to let him tell me now what his favorite gold products are. If you can just real quickly, Fred, in the next three minutes or so, give us an idea. Sure. Right now I'm suggesting the $20 Double Eagle Liberty and Gold St. Gaudens, certified by either PCGS or NGC for personal possession. I use a ratio strategy or a simple mathematical formula which expresses the premiums of these coins versus the common one-ounce American Eagle. Today, the premiums or extrinsic value on these double eagles are low relative to their intrinsic metal content. Mm-hmm. In the past, it would take an excess three, four, as much as eight ounces of gold to purchase a nice mint state 63, 64, or 65 uncirculated St. Gaudens. While today, a mint state 63 St. Gaudens can be purchased for just one and a half ounces of gold. Mm. So with the ratio at 1.5, this makes the $20 double eagle undervalued compared to a one-ounce bullion coin. Mm -hmm. This this low ratio, Jay, reflects the general apathy in the United States for gold products. Mm -hmm. But we believe as gold prices rise or if there are any economic surprises, Americans will quickly buy all gold products available. And because these double eagles, uh, which are collectibles, are demand-sensitive, there's only a finite supply of the uncirculated coins, and supplies can quickly be pared down, as experienced in the latter part of uh, September 08. Yeah. This has been a very strange year for the gold coin market. The volatility in gold has apparently scared away potential investors, so coin premiums are presently low. Jay, yeah. we first met in September 06 at the Las Vegas Hot Asset. Yeah, I, I recall that, Fred. And I did a study right after that uh, between the end of uh, December 06 to the end of 09, in three years, comparing a purchase of 100 American Eagle gold bullion coins to the equivalent of 78 MS-63 St. Gardens. Any investor who bought and sold these coins during this period would have made about 35% more profit in the St. Gardens than the bullion coins. Mm. In other words, during a prolonged rise in gold prices, as we saw in the three-year period, the collectible or extrinsic value of the coin increased significantly more than the intrinsic metal value of the coin. Simply put, with the double eagles, you have the double play. With rising gold prices, you have an increase in the bullion value of the coin, as well as an increase in the extrinsic or collectible value. And it's Mm -hmm. really quite simple. 
and my associate and I can explain this to anyone interested. We can mail or email them some charts, and we can be reached at 888-732-7411. And we want to introduce, I also wrote an article about two years ago on these coins called Little Treasures, Big Secret, which I'd be glad to email to you as well. Yeah, please send listen. me a copy of that, Fred. Oh, but uh, but that. those people can call at triple eight seven three two seven four one one for more information on anything, I guess, to do with your products. Exactly. So, so Fred, are you looking then at uh, at some sort of a magic ratio? You mentioned it's one and a half to one, and whereas before it was eight to one, well, that is there was some on the... sort of a, of, of a threshold where you might be you know, saying it makes more sense to buy the St. Gaudens or one of those? Absolutely. When the ratio is high, let's just look at a low-grade St. Gaudens with a one and a half to ratio. I think you'll see it go to three to four to one. And mm-hmm. at that point, we might consider switching back into bullion and possibly doubling our position, yeah. depending on the privacy issues and the sentiment in the market. So it gives you a leverage play on gold, in essence, doesn't it? Absolutely. And then, and then you get back into the bullion when it gets overpriced. And Correct. it's a very interesting uh, strategy, and it's worked well for you. Very well. You know, uh, Fred, we only we, I've got to wrap up now. We're out of time. Thank you so much for coming on with us. We're going to have you on some more to talk about these very, very interesting products. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, folks, pleasure. that's all the time we have this week. Um, you can take advantage, again, I want to remind you, you can take advantage of our low-priced subscriptions by calling my assistant, Claudio Bob. At 718 for our trial subscriptions. Um, don't go, you know, next week we're going to have some really interesting people. We're going to have James Turk, is going to be with us to talk about inflation. And we didn't get to talk to Dr. Fred Goldstein about his inflation views. He's an inflationist, he tells me. Uh, we're going to have James Turk on with us. Uh, Roger Wiegand will be with me for an extended period of time next week. And then after that, the following week, we got Daniel Estulin of the, uh, to talk about the Builder. Burgers, Adrian Salbucci, to talk about globalization. The two of them will be on with us together. And then following that, we have Howard Davidowitz, who's going to be with us, well-known retail analyst. And so we have lots of very, very interesting people coming to you over the next several weeks. Again, thank you, Fred Goldstein, for being with us. In closing, I want to thank uh, my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, ja- uh, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Again, thanks to our sponsors for making this show financially possible. Till next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't